Welcome to Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG, brought to you by Baker. In every episode, we'll investigate how purpose, vision, and values can guide your company's sustainability actions, behaviors, and mindsets. And we'll discuss their impact with the help of ESG-focused guests from around the globe. I'm your host, Rocket. And I'm your host, Gary. Let's get started. Today, we're speaking with Chris Hines. Chris is a moaning, bloody environmentalist who has been an environmental campaigner for over 30 years and is passionate about making positive change. He works on strategic planning, communications, leadership, and embedding sustainability principles as a part of a profitable business. And he strongly believes that business can be a force for good in a changing world. He's the founder of A Grain of Sand, founded in 2009, an organization that works to inspire, campaign, communicate, measure, give solutions, and drive positive change in a range of areas. He was also Eden Project Sustainability Director for six years. At Eden, he focused on conceiving and delivering waste-neutral and early version of the circular economy and helping embed the triple bottom line of sustainable business practice throughout the organization. Prior to Eden's project, he was the co-founder and director of Surface Against Sewage, SAS, for more than 10 years. SAS is a national marine conservation campaigning charity that inspires, unites, and empowers communities to take action to protect oceans, beaches, waves, and wildlife. Chris has an honorary doctorate of science from the University of Plymouth. Chris, welcome to Sustainable Minds. Lovely. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. So the one thing I I love about this show is that we get to talk to a lot of different people that are in this gigantic sandbox of sustainability, pun intended there. And everybody comes from a different background and they're doing different things. And so it's really exciting to hear the point of view and the difference that they're making in the world. So I'm kind of curious, how did you arrive here? And then I want to start with when you were young, a young boy, what did you like to do? I mean, what inspired you? I was lucky. I grew up in fairly immersed in the natural environment, walking on kind of moorland, which is so open moorland. I spent a lot of time at the beaches. My dad, my mum and dad were both kind of keen amateur kind of like biologist-y type things. They had that love of the natural environment and getting us out in it. So to me, that was commonplace. That's where I spent most of my early years. And I think that established that love of the natural environment. And if you love something, then you will do anything you can to protect it. And at school, I so those kind of things was surfing as well. I started surfing when I was probably... My first ever surfing was I had a little wooden belly board, like a what? little one of those when I was about five. And then I got my first ever stand-up surfboard when I was about 12 and then secondhand wetsuits and secondhand surfboards. And then I failed all my exams at school because I was too busy going surfing and took the wrong subjects. <laughs> and then I, I got a job working for a surfing magazine, moved to Cornwall when I was 19 was an associate editor of the of Britain's first surfing magazine to get national distribution through news agents. 
And then I kind of did a whole variety of jobs. I traveled a lot, went to Australia for a year's working holiday and kind of odd jobs, lots of different things. And then came back and then in 1990, late 89 stroke 1990, we formed this organization, Surface Against Sewage. And, and we formed it because the thing that we loved, i.e. the beach, the coastal environment, was just in this dreadful state. There was, I'll quote Margaret Thatcher, who at the time was our prime minister, and she stated, and I quote on BBC Nature, all sewage is treated before discharge. And that was a downright lie. There were 400 million gallons of completely crude sewage being discharged around the coastal waters of the UK every single day, when she wow. said. Literally every village, town or city that was on the coast flushed completely crude sewage without even a, no treatment whatsoever, not even a basic sieve or screen, straight into the sea. Yeah. Wow. And our beach, which is called Porth Town, that one received on a bad day, that would receive all of the sewage from the largest conurbation in Cornwall, Redruth and Campbell, out of two outfall pipes completely crude. And it was like surfing in the toilet of the largest conurbation in the county. It was disgusting. Lumps of human feces, panty liners, condoms. Oh my God. <laughs> Yeah, we went to our local kind of council and the water company and we said, well, what's happening? And they said, nothing, the beach is fine. At which point you have a campaign. Yeah. Yes. Exactly, exactly. Well, thank you for taking up that campaign. I know when I've been down in Mexico surfing, all of a sudden you're in a situation, you see the stuff floating in the water and you go, oh my God, we're pretty lucky here in Southern California. Although we do have a huge treatment plant every once in a while, that thing backs up. And you just got to stay out of the water in that particular area for for a period of time. Okay, you say surfing can change the world. Now, surfing actually has to clean up its act. Yeah. In order to be able to do that, surfing's not a particularly squeaky sport. Our wetsuits aren't particularly clever. Our surfboards right. are still toxic lumps of plastic. But it's got a lot to do. But what I mean by that phrase is that back in 1990, there were hardly any surfers in the UK. But surfing's used to sell everything from washing powder, alcohol, right. all those things. We surf yeah. and net. It's, it, it's the ab man's dream. <laughs> and my so what we kind of did with Surfers Against Sewage in the 1990s was to use that imagery of surfing to far it. We far outweighed the number of people who were actually surfing. We used that imagery, that iconic imagery and the and the attractiveness of surfing. Mm -hmm. People love that association. Yeah. So we were using that to sell the message of contaminated seawater. My thought of surfing can change the world is the industry, if it did clean up its act, could tell the story of how it did that and then say, well, we've done this and therefore kind of own us on it. And again, using it as a marketing tool to drive that through. So there are some good initiatives, but we still got a long way to go on this one i think i made well, that probably 10 years ago and unfortunately the surfing industry isn't moving very very rapidly yeah knowing surfers and growing up surfing and then what that associated with but and this fits right in line i mean you're a bit of an activist and you've been known to chase politicians <laughs> around with a six foot inflatable turd <laughs> i love that I, I do. yeah yeah that's true Guilty as accused. So, again, if you want to get the media attraction. Exactly. you got to do something, right? Yeah. And 
that was probably the best spent money of on any prop that we ever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Probably five hundred dollars. Yeah, with our name right down the side of it. So if you're jumping oh. over the fence, and I did once jump over the fence, and with my wetsuit on, we had gas mask as well. So we put gas mask on on my head, and then someone lobbed the inflatable turd behind me, and I kind of got within two meters of Tony Blair when he was the prime minister. I was able to say to him, "You do realize, Mr. Blair, while you're in Cornwall, if you do a poo, it's going straight in the sea. No sieve, nothing, no treatment." <laughs> So I think, I mean, we never ever had any, we never had a single arrest in 10 years of campaigning that I was there, but we pushed it right up to the line. And I think as well, I've been thinking quite a lot about this, like, so yeah, absolutely, I'm an activist, but I also think that it's almost as well beyond activism. Activism requires that you run multi-faceted campaign, that you use every tool that is used to sell the version of the world and create the world that we live in. We use all those tools and we use them better. So when we were at Surface Against Sewage, you know, we used the law, we used politics, we used media, we used shareholder action. We had share, we bought shares in every water company and could go to their annual general meeting and we would affect their share price in the city of mm. London, financial institutions. We had our, our mouths swabbed, our blood sucked. It proved that surfers were three times more likely to contract hepatitis A than the general public. So we used all of those tools so, and we went off and found the solution. So we found the water industry wanted to just build long sea outfalls and pump it further out to sea. But we found on the island of Jersey that they put in this thing called ultraviolet light disinfection. And I gave some evidence to Parliament and I was called to go and give oral evidence. So I put my suit and tie on, went up to the House of Parliament in London and um, they quizzed me about this. And they said, how confident are you in this UV technology? My response was, based on the bacterial count in their outfall pipe compared to the bacterial count on beaches such as Porth Tower, I'd feel 50 times safer sticking my head up Jersey's outfall pipe than I would bathing on those beaches. And about a week after I made that statement, the island of Jersey's tourist department said, phoned us up and said, this would make really good marketing for our <laughs> for the island of Jersey. So I did. I went out there and I duck-dived into the mouth of 100,000 people's sewage. Wow. Stand by what I said. Look, tasted and smelt cleaner than the beaches that we were bathing on. Oh, my God. Uh, wow. Yeah. I love it. I read something. You strongly believe that business can be a force for good in changing the world. I couldn't agree more. It's obvious it's more than just business, but they got to do a lot of heavy lifting. So I want to talk about uh, a grain of sand, your company. I love this little saying on your website. A grain of sand, small, irritating, but comes out pearls. So that's 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 nice little poetry. It says a grain of sand driving positive change. Talk about that today, what you're trying to do. So this thing about so you do need irritants. An irritant is a good thing because you need to provoke. We need change and we need radical change to happen. We sure do. But business, the politicians, politicians are fairly often cowards, I think. They'll move when business moves. So one of the things that's strong, and businesses can be more agile, they can take a longer term if they ignore short-term financial returns and things like that. They yeah. can take a longer view because they're not, their eye isn't just on being elected again. Or I mean, you've just gone through it over in the US, kind of mid, you know, that's only two years into yeah. the whole 
thing. And so how are you meant to plan? You know, none of us plan our lives on a two-year cycle. It's just madness. So I think that businesses, when they switch and they bring the force of their teams and their finances behind them and they focus on doing the right thing, and that's that balance between profit isn't a dirty word, but profit isn't the only reason why a company should exist. A company should exist to do its mission, and that mission should also be locked in with environmental and a social conscience as well, trying to do the right thing by people, but also trying to do the right thing environmentally as well. And there's a book, Mark Carney, who was the former governor of the Bank of England, he wrote a book, it was hard reading for me, but he wrote a book called Values, Building a Better World for All. And in there, he's looking at this kind of stuff. And there's a quote from an economist, Sir John Kay, and it says, Profit is no more the purpose of business than breathing is the purpose of living. Mm. Now, where he's coming from there is that this thing of, yeah, of course you've got to make profit, but plow it back. Make sure you're doing the right thing. And if you're making profit by exploiting the environment or and or exploiting people, well, in that case, you deserve to go bust in my book. So that's that kind of thing. And I think it's very clear when we were campaigning with Service Against Sewage back in the 1990s, there was one company, Dur Cymru Welsh Water, who did all the sewage treatment work for Wales. They were the one who broke rank. They said, well, actually, yeah, for the people of Wales, for the environment of Wales, we will do this. And as well, it made more sense for the bill payers. So I think good companies will be a big part of this kind of pioneering and this drive forwards because they can invest and they can be more agile. So businesses with a conscience, I particularly like the whole B Corporation movement. I think that's a great yes. drive forwards. And I think that way of businesses being accountable to that, that's almost kind of got a five bottom line in there. I also, you hear from a lot of the money managers now of the big institutional gorillas they're looking and seeing sustainable companies, not just that long term they perform better, but they're because they're also a source of innovation that other companies aren't. And so that's like definitely connects with what you're saying that once you put the teams and the talent and the focus, that what can come out of that can be exponential. Yeah, that's what we have to do. We have to unlock the potential yeah. of our teams. I was chairing a conference and spoke at it up in Newcastle on the East Coast here last week. And they had the head of sustainability and innovation for IKEA. Mm-hmm. And he was saying, yeah, you've got to employ and you know nurture crazy people, people who will do, who will absolutely say, of course, we can go and do that. And they will make those things go and happen through innovation and through being a bit crazy, reinventing it. And this thing, if you don't, if you're 70% sure it's the right thing to do and 30% isn't going to kill anybody or cause the company to crash, keep going forwards. Yeah, exactly. Energy. We've got a, you know, and of course we can do this. We've got such an amazing history as a species. If we point ourselves in the right direction, we address the big challenges, we can rise to that. Yeah. I'm yeah yeah I'm not completely on board with you that companies corporations here can and must be a force for good but we yeah. need to not be like 
politicians are like every Greedy four bastards. years. It can't be just from one CEO cycle to the next CEO cycle to the next. It's got to how there's got to be a way of embedding this long term view into right. their business model. The good news, I think, is sustainability strategies is becoming such a big part of many companies' business strategy that it's going to have to, maybe. Well, their feet are starting to be held to the fire by people who want pay tied to performance on sustainability. And that's the only thing that long-term is going to force the people who don't really want the change to happen. And I think, I mean, we're seeing an ever-increasing amount of shareholder action here. The investors want this because the investors know the kicking, you know, the old adage, there is no business on a dead planet. Well, it, that's starting to ring pretty damn true. And if you want, also, if you do the right thing, you're going to get the best team. Because young people are at, now they're, they're coming out, the best graduates, they're looking at who they're going to go and work for. They're not just chasing the buck anymore. Yep. That's going, okay, which company will help? If I go and give my career and I work for this company, will that make a difference to the world in which we live and to the people and the planet? So I think that combined with investors, and also we own a lot of this investment. We kind of forget that the companies, a lot of companies, I know this is the case over in the UK, and I'm assuming it's the same in a lot of places and probably the US as well, are pensions. So those pension funds that we pay into. Yes. We own the big corporate shareholder action. And we Huge. used that back in the 90s. And it's our insurance policies and it's our banking and it's our savings. And we've got the incredible amount of power in our own pockets. Each one of us, I mean, let alone businesses, but each one of us, if in our lives, we will probably, even if we only earn $25,000, say, then, and you work for 40 years, that's with inflation and wage increases, you're probably going to have three million pounds that you now that's in your life. You choose how you spend that, right. whether you invest that in the right thing or the bad thing. And I think people now know that chasing those the false gods of the next bit of consumer tat doesn't actually genuinely make people happy. So I think those things are starting to unravel as well. So people like holding up the likes of the Kardashians as the VIPs of this world is gone. That doesn't ring true. I think people are now looking for their heroes and their VIPs who actually represent something, who have genuine good characters, good characteristics show that they care. And I think that's starting to be the way as well with what we choose to spend our money on. I want to build on a lot of stuff, but before I move there, I want to talk a little bit about your company, A Grain of Sand. I love the website and I love how you engage with it. And you say we boiled down our experiences to several key aspects here. Why don't you just talk about a few of those key aspects? Because I think our listeners would be curious what a company like yours does and how you help businesses and what kind of change you guys drive. So what we try to do, like, why do you exist as a company? What is your actual fundamental purpose? What are the problems? How do you find the solution behind that? Because there is a solution. How do you create that environment for change? What's preventing you moving forward to deliver the solutions? And is that kind of fear? Is that that we've always done it this way, so we can't go through into that? 
you have to measure everything. So you have to know exactly where you are. And I think if you don't measure something, then you can't relate it to whether you're going to get, well, you can't set targets against getting better. But also you can't go and talk to anybody about what your problems are. Yeah. (laughs) One of the big things in life is to try and get help. Put your hand up and say help. Because two things happen there. One, lots of other people say, well, I thought I was the only person who was experiencing that problem. And the second is that someone somewhere will go, yep, I can help you do that. Or maybe we can collaborate. So it's that kind of stuff that I'll try and do and stimulate them. And then how do you communicate? How do we communicate better? Because at the moment, it feels like, and I think less so, I think it feels like that sometimes the communication gurus are on the other side. But like even meeting you two tonight, there's a lot of good people who know that the communications element of telling the strongest story, of telling the right story, is a key way of our changing the whole narrative here. You touched on something, the fundamental reason you exist as a company. In our work, we do exactly very much the same, and we usually shape it up and call it your purpose. It could be your mission, it could be your purpose. But I see a lot of people, a lot of companies of that this notion of purpose is very popular. And so I call it purpose washing. They, 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 they sit in their conference room and a couple of the people get around, what should our purpose be? And they make up these statements. And if you're familiar with Simon Sinek, he, he really talks about the why, the how, and the what. Everybody can, tell, can say what you do. Some people can say how you do it, but a very few people can say, why you do it. And then a lot of these companies, can't, they come out with the what they do, but they kind of use every corporate jargon, BS word they can, and they call it a purpose statement. Do you come up against that? Do you see that in your business? Yeah, I think a lot of companies are, yeah, they're trying to kind of, there's greenwash and purpose wash yeah. and social wash going on here. I think it would do a power of good to take those people out into the wild environment. I think if you strip stuff away and you let them experience and then think what their purpose is, why they're doing it. Yeah. Um, with nothing. Yeah, I've seen a few CEOs have an epiphany. I've seen yeah. a few CEOs come around and go, oh, I get it. I've seen a few CEOs even open up, and I call it penetrating the uh, corporate veneer. veneer. <laughs> They've been trained and taught so much just to think. And not not feel with their heart and soul, not be vulnerable, not be open and transparent and honest. It's when you can get to that level that then you can maybe start to break through some of those that need to be thinking that way. And it's interesting what you were saying about raising your hand with help, because I see that collaboration between businesses is going to be so key where in the past it's been about competition and they're going to have to break through that at some point and be able to have somebody make them understand how much stronger we can deliver by collaborating. And yes, you've got to find your edge and have your innovation to still drive those profits. But that just gives you more money that you can, on the collaboration side, really support moving to the future, moving forward. 
And I always say to Gary, thank God for the millennials and the why and the younger generations of people because they're the largest generation and they aren't going to be easily contained. A salary, it's gotten so much wider between the top five, 10% and the rest of us that they understand that these people have got to work together and push so that we can have good things and not just support billionaires that are using our resources unproportionately and doing bad things. I think that the wage ratio thing that you're touching on there. Absolutely. Ben and Jerry's had it times 12, didn't they? And I think, again, if you flip back to that kind of Kardashian's comment, I wonder how actually genuinely happy people are when they've got all of that money. And actually, there's a connection with each other and with the planet. Those are the important things. And that's why I think sometimes that if you want to try and shift a company, then getting them out into the natural environment, getting them away from the mechanisms where they're comfortable and saying, okay, what purpose does your company actually have? What purpose does your life actually have? I saw a really miserable guy two weeks ago. He was just, I went to his retire, I caught up with him for a, a lunch just as he was retiring. And he said, oh, I haven't been happy for 37 years. And you just go, what? And he's 61. That's kind of too late. Yeah. Well, <laughs> also, if he hasn't found it in those 30 years, so those 38 or whatever those years were, good luck in finding it now. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's there if you want it. If you want it. There the whole time. But I also look at his effect on a company with which he was working for, and I can quite clearly see the damage to that company. Yeah. And I think if people I aren't... so. Yeah, and they don't understand why they're why they're at work and are they happy in their work, then they you need to be having those conversations. And I think that's one of the things, and I feel bolder in it the older I get, is challenging people as to what that what on earth they do think they're doing with their companies and with their workforce and with their people and their product and their service and all those kind of things. Because as you were saying, Roxanne, we need to collaborate. The challenges facing us are so huge that if we think one company is going to come through and save us, it's not. We need all the skills that we've got from multi-people, multi-companies, all working together, absolute gender equality and all complete equity and equality for all people. That would be a massive great thing. Yeah, I see it. I mean, this whole culture that preceded us of not only with mental health and people understanding that some of those figures now, just because it's more popular, been popularized with that whole moving away from stigma, they realize a lot of those people who have been very powerful are narcissistic, that incredibly selfish. Like, why would we allow them to have the power to ruin the planet for our coming generations. Yeah, and for what? For what? Yeah, for yeah. selfish. Well, here's a flip to that. And we talk oh, about yeah. the Kardashians, and mm. they're born out of here in Southern California. Yeah. A community right next to me, actually. But there was a guy here, there's a guy here in Southern California, and he was really born from this love of nature an adventurer 
and had a real passion of sustainability. He lived it early. That I think you're wearing one of his jackets. I mean, he's a global hero. He was the conference I was speaking at, which is a built environment construction put on, hosted by a bunch of architects. They are in Newcastle, northeast of England, industrial town. One of the first things the guy running it, Rob, was said to me was, have you ever met Yvonne Chouinard? Yeah. He's, he's a legend. Yeah. He just donated the entire company to support climate change instead of going public to grandize his family and himself to be billionaires. One shareholder, the planet. Yeah. Yep. I love it. And, you know, he's been that way from the beginning, but at the same time, and he understood that power of advertising yeah. for sustainability. Yeah. He was the first person, you know, who came out with full page New York Times saying circularity of their products. Send us your old jackets and we'll replace the zipper. Yeah, we'll fix it. Yeah, I mean, incredible, incredible. And what an example to all of his employees. I think if you come in on those bits as well, the circularity and the circular economy, why on earth do we, those are going to be the models that drive everything forwards in the future. Because yeah, absolutely. why would you give away? So, for example, say a television, why would you sell that television to someone, and then you've got to go off and try and get the semi-precious materials, the plastic, the minerals, the electrics, all out of it again by going down to the dump and trying to, you just build them. And we used to have, like in the UK, no one used to own their televisions. It was the same with you? We used oh, to have really? a company, Radio Rentals. Oh, no. No, we always bought and owned them. Yeah, so and threw them away. Back in when I was growing up in the kind of like 60s and 70s, no one owned televisions. Wow. There were companies on the high street who hired you your television. Mm. Wow. Interesting. And then when then after two, three years, they give you the next version and they take the other one away. So this okay. stuff has been done before. Yeah. Because if you build that, then you've always got the materials. Yeah. That's right. I love it. So you're an idea guy. Sometimes. And, and so I want to ask you this question, but I want to. I read a post and I think it's very related. The question I want to ask is what new ideas are in do you think about or that are in your head that you can share or see? But I read the post where you're absolutely thrilled to be partnering with Soundview Media uh, to develop a new type of tourism event. So this is coming up in, I think it's next week. It is next week. So this is about how tourism can be a force for good. And it's about really so connecting people to the natural environment and to the people and the host communities of where they go. So all too, all too often the tourist industry, just you fly in, you even the food that you're consuming might not even be from the place where you are. Oh, absolutely. And the people aren't necessarily well paid. You don't engage in that local community. So it's about that kind of experience. There's a brilliant quote from the guys who wrote Lonely Planet and Rough Guide. It's a massive, great tourist guys. Travel less, stay longer. And I think, again, those, because the short two-day blip to a weekend break is not sustainable tourism. That doesn't really, your carbon footprint's huge. And also, you're probably not even relaxing realistically but what will happen that day is 
this is, is this conference next week with Soundview Media is that we'll be trying to to talk through with some tourist industry people what will that actually feel like? What will and I'm going to be painting a picture of the total beauty of a sustainable holiday from the moment you how you travel there, what you experience, what your gifts are. Do you make the gifts? Do you go to a local pottery or do you go on a wow. yeah. day out with someone? It's about experiencing the place and the food and everything. Well, I always objected. And changing. Yeah. My grandparents and my husband's parents, when we used to travel with them, I used to say to them, they take their whole environment with them. They're on these cruise ships and then they just get onto a bus and they drive around. They don't even eat the food of the place that they've stopped. Or smell the same air. Yeah, or breathe the same air. It's incredible. And I said, I don't want to do that. I want to go to a place and be there. When Airbnb started, that was the start where people's like, oh, and trading homes. And it's just a whole different mindset of what's rich. Yeah. And that's kind of feeding your soul. If you don't come back from a holiday with, and you mentioned it earlier, Gary, about your feeling stuff in here and everything in life is a combination of your heart and your mind. You need to feed both of those. And when we were talking about changing corporate leaders, we're all, in a way, the leaders of our own lives and our interactions with those. So all holidays should make people reflect. Yep. And one thing is, is I see that as the past has been more about exclusivity and glamour and wealth and what all of that, whereas this type of future is really about connecting and experiencing someone and appreciating the biodiversity of the planet, not just going off with friends who are all of a certain elk and they're just like staying unto themselves and moving through another place rather than becoming part of it for a moment that impacts them to maybe change or have a different perspective. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I really think the future has that potential for the world. It's richer. It's definitely richer. Yeah. And it's a different yeah. definition of richer. Yeah, yeah, rich. yeah, absolutely. Which, if you flip to that kind of Mark Carley's book, Values, Building a Better World for All, what is your value? What do you actually, because when we all get in a little wicker coffin at the end of our lives, we won't regret never having had that Ferrari, Turbo, whatever it is. We no, so not having understood our natural environment, of making the effort to talk to people around the world like we are now, of not telling people that we love that we love them, and not tasting a damn good Cornish pasty if you happen to be a... <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, you speak with a lot of businesses. We speak to a lot of small to medium-sized businesses who are just starting their sustainability journey and they feel the pressure to get some sort of report out there. What advice do you give companies that are in that place if you come across those okay. topics? The ones starting out. Yeah. Don't be ashamed that you're just starting out. I think a lot of people are hooked up slightly. They feel guilted that they haven't started. But I've been doing this for 30 plus years, 32, 33 years. 
and it's okay. And when and that is that thing of help again. When you look around the room, most people haven't. Yeah. And sharing, even by sharing the fact that we're not any good at this, allows everybody else to pitch in and normalize that. And to take that first step to measure the carbon footprint of what you do, do a rough analysis of what your big social issues are. What are your big environmental issues? And what are your big financial issues? That's that triple bottom line thinking. Right. So it's just, and even just doing a brainstorm for a few hours with someone like yourselves or with someone like me, with that kind of catalyst, that friendly, slightly external voice to say, what are the important social, environmental things and financial things to you as a business? I love that. Don't be ashamed. That's good advice. Yeah, and start. And start. Start, yeah. That's good. That's good. So I'm going to wrap it up here, Chris, with a question kind of looking forward. If you had your fortune teller's hat on, your crystal ball, what does the next five, 10 years look like to you? Or what would you like it to look like? Either or. For me, I think we're going to go through a big shift. And this conference last week, funny, was called Shift. I think we are waking up and we're waking up pretty pronto. The impact of what we've done to the climate is just there for everybody to see. And I think what's going to happen is that we're going to move away from the self-centered, narcissistic kind of male version of the world, which is just about money, money, money and ego. Mm -hmm. And we're going to suddenly go, actually, we could do this. We could live life very differently and that we do need to look after each other and look after the planet because that's the only one we've got. And there's a moment, and it's happening right now as we speak, within the next 24 hours, we will go to 8 billion people on the face of the planet. Wow. Unbelievable. So, yeah, it's literally by the time you probably wake up tomorrow morning, we'll be through 8 billion. And that's a moment. Yeah, big. Yeah. We can then flip that and go, okay, like this could be 8 billion people for good. And I think people are all waking up and I think we need do need some leadership. Some of that will be political, but also I think it can be businesses, strong businesses with a true purpose that's connected to the environment and the societies in which they operate. Wow. I think it's going to be more interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, to use a 60 term. Right on. So, <laughs> I say right on Let's all the time. Let's make it bitching. <laughs> yeah, I right on a lot. Yeah, I say yeah. Right on. So yeah. A very good friend of mine, Solomon Powell. He's a six foot seven raster man, but works for Peter Gabriel. You know Peter Gabriel. Yes. Yeah. Of course. Solomon, Solomon works with Peter Gabriel, and yeah, I always sign off by saying right on to. Her. Yeah. <laughs> Chris, uh, it's been you. wonderful. Thank you so much you. for your time tonight. It's a real pleasure. Lovely to meet you. Lovely nice to meet, to meet you, you too. and I hope we do it again, maybe in the new year sometime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take care. Okay. 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 Thank Bye -bye. you. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Sustainable Minds wherever you get your podcasts. And please do live a review if you like what we're doing. It helps others discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. If you want to find out more about how we can help you evolve your corporate brand, culture, and ESG, head to bakerbrand.com. See you on the next episode of Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG.